This is Jason Hansen, pastor of Anchor Church. Thank you for jumping onto our sermon podcast. My prayer is that as you listen to this sermon, you're encouraged in your walk with Jesus and that you live for him in all of life. Enjoy the sermon now. So if you would turn to Mark chapter 10 in our series of, of Who Then Is This? Trying to figure out what it looks like uh, to be a disciple. And actually, what, is it, what does it look like to look at Jesus as the king? which is what he, he is. So if you're, if you're a guest this morning, I welcome you. Thank you for being here. If I haven't met you, please, please come say hi. Uh, sometimes it's hard for me to get all the way around the room, so, so come say hi to me if you would at the end because I'd like to greet you, uh, if, you if you're new. Uh, when I was in high school, I um, you know, d- did dumb things. That's what high school kids kind of do. No offense if you're a high school kid. I'm not saying you, but you, you do. Um, um, <laughs> And you will. It's okay. Uh, when I was in high school, there was a Mexican restaurant we used to go to. And the reason we went there was because they had amazing uh, bean dip and chips. The best part about it was they were free. So you'd sit down, and they'd bring you unlimited chips with unlimited bean dip and unlimited salsa. And so what we would do, because we're in high school, is we would get water and then find the cheapest thing on the menu, which was a taco. It was fifty. order one. And, uh, and then just fill up on free chips and salsa and bean dip. Like, just spend all of our time. It, it would cost us $2 with tax. We'd give a $2 tip, so 4 bucks out the door full. It was amazing, right? It was trying to figure out what is the bare minimum? What's the least amount we have to pay? What's the cheapest thing on the menu for us to get to get the benefit of eating here with all of its goodness and to pay the, to pay the least? Like, what is, it, what is the bare minimum? What's the least I can get away with buying to get the benefits? This is is kind of how we were thinking about this. And quite frankly, if I were to be honest, I would say uh, there are times, Christian, where we actually view discipleship this way. We think to ourselves, what's the cheapest thing? What's the bare minimum, the least amount that I have to do as a disciple to gain the benefits of knowing Jesus? Now, when we look at gospel realities and salvation, we know... We know that we, it's by grace we've been saved, right, through faith. But then it's walking that out. What's the least? As a disciple, what's the least that I got to do to follow Jesus? You know, he's the king, but man, you know, what, what, what do I have to do? Or maybe what can I get away with doing in my life that would still maybe make me look like a follower of Jesus? What does that look like? And I think that that's the wrong question. Actually, my, my big idea today is what can I get away with is the wrong question for a disciple. What can I get away with? Which is, which is a different way of saying, what's the least amount that I have to give? What's the least amount that I have to do? What is it? What is the, what is the, the least amount? What can I get away with and still call myself a disciple? This is the wrong question. It's the wrong starting point for us. And maybe you read ahead in the text and you're thinking, how in the world... Because your Bible says the question of divorce, how in the world did we get there from, uh, from that uh, text that we're going to read today? And we're going we're to walk that out a little bit. Really, it's, Jesus is dealing with that question with the Pharisees. What's the least amount here? They don't ask it that way, but that's really what they're asking. What can I get away with and, and still be a disciple? So the question is, what's the right question? If that's the wrong question then what's the right question? And we're going we're gonna to hit that today. Here's where we're going today. Let me just give you a quick overview. Uh, we're going to hit two heart-revealing tests 
that we see in this, in this uh, first part, Mark, Mark chapter 10, and then we're going to hit the right question. This is kind of where we're going today, two heart-revealing tests that we see and, and the right question. I'm going to read, uh, beginning in Mark chapter 9, we're going to go back a little bit from what we read last week because I think it's important for us to actually understand what, what um, Mark wants us to grasp from what Jesus is here talking about. We're going to begin in verse um, 49 of, of chapter 9, and then we're going to go through Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 12. So this is the, the word of the Lord to us this morning. Remember, what can I get away with is the wrong question for the disciple. This is what Mark 9, 49 says. For everyone will be salted with fire. If you remember, I talked about how that has to do with sacrifice. We are the sacrifice. The the sacrificial system was you sacrifice with salt. And Jesus is saying, we are the sacrifice. It costs us something to follow him. Verse 50 says, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And quite frankly, this is one of the reasons why we love um, going through the Bible like this. Because oftentimes, if a preacher has an opportunity to preach a text, likely they're not going to go, you know what I'm going to preach? I'm going to preach Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12, because it's going to offend a lot of people. Uh, so so we, go through the, we go through the scriptures uh, more often than not, uh, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter of the Bible, because we hit things like this that are so important for us to grasp. We want to make sure we understand what he's talking about. Now, the disciples in chapter 9 uh, were addressed with, with something specific, and last week I talked about the distractions that we have. And let me, let me hit the positives, because last week I talked about the distractions, but this is really what Jesus was trying to get at as he was talking with the disciples. A disciple should be Christ-focused, others-charitable, kingdom-enchanted. Christ-focused instead of self-focused, others-charitable instead of others-critical, and kingdom-enchanted instead of this world-enchanted. This is what a disciple should be. This is what it should look like, a sacrifice. It should cost you something to follow him because we are the opposite. We like to be self-focused. Like I said last week, we love a lot of ourselves. It's just the way that it is. I'm the same way. I'm not speaking to you without me. This is the way that it is, and we can be critical of others, and we can love the things of this world. So this is important because Mark orders this gospel with chapter 10 after, verse, after chapter 9 for a reason, because it flows out of that. We see what does it mean to be a disciple? 
And maybe we can say, what does it mean to be a disciple in a marriage? What, is this, what does this look like for us? How do we think through this? And, and really to understand that, we, we see these two heart-revealing tests that come at us. And the first test is the Pharisees' surprise test. It might be called a pop quiz. They, they pop in, they take Jesus to school, and they say, hey, we want to give you the surprise test. Here's what it is, because they show up on the scene as Jesus is on the, in the region of Judea, across the Jordan, all these crowds are around him, and these Pharisees, which were the, the leading, um, some, some of the leading uh, teachers or, or uh, leaders of Israel of the day, and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, what are they asking? Are there caveats to what they're asking? I think Don Carson, who's a, who's a theologian in his commentary on this, he, he, he says this. I think it's helpful for us. He says, The Scriptures assume divorce is reality. This is from Deuteronomy 24. And all Jesus accepted that it was... And, and all Jews, I'm sorry, accepted that it was legal. They debated on its grounds. Everyone agreed that adultery and other similar weighty offenses like abuse, cruelty, humiliation... Persistent refusal to provide requisite food or clothing, willful conjugal or emotional neglect, etc., from Exodus 21, were clear causes for divorce and required the punishment of the offending party. However, many Pharisees also permitted husbands a no-fault divorce for any matter, such as his wife not accepting his control, finding a more attractive woman, or spoiling his meal. Yes, that's true. He read that right. The question concerns Jesus' view of the validity of this no-fault divorce with his any matter, like anything goes. And we know this because in Matthew, in the same text, when Jesus caveats that and says, anybody that, that divorces his spouse and marries another commits adultery, but he does caveat it there and says, uh, except for sexual immorality. And so there, there are these categories that we know, sexual immorality, abandonment, including abuse and things like that, that we could look at and say, yeah, there's per- permission here. But Jesus is dealing with this question, and this question has to do with, is it lawful for any reason for somebody to divorce their spouse? For a man to divorce his wife, is it, is it just this no fault, any matter divorce? Can someone just go and say, I'm kind of tired of you, you spoiled the meal, I'm divorcing you? This is a test for Jesus, actually. It doesn't say, notice, that they asked him the question, which would have been okay given the fact that they saw him as a rabbi. They, they weren't asking him a question simply, they were testing him. The question is, what, what are they testing? Why are they testing him this way? They were doing it because they wanted to sway public opinion against him, one way or another. Almost like, think about it this way, almost like if you have a lawyer that's, that's um, going at somebody on the stand in a courtroom, and they're asking questions, and they have a follow-up question that's supposed to catch them in some answer to sway the jury against that person, to sway the opinion of the jury they want to turn the jury against him or the judge against him or the people against him. They're trying, to, they're trying to ask him a question, him or her a question that they can't answer. And this is what they're trying to do with Jesus. Because if Jesus answers, no, it's not lawful, flat out, then he would almost automatically become an enemy of Herod and the Romans. Because this is what happened to John the Baptist. He was questioning what, what Herod was doing with his marriage and he was beheaded. And so he's trying to, they're trying to say, okay, if he answers no, then I think that Herod's going to turn against him, and so are the Romans. This is what we're looking for. But if he answers, yes, it is lawful, then we make him an enemy of, of John the Baptist, because John preached against this. 
Either, either answer Jesus gives, yes or no, is going to turn the public opinion somehow, some way against him. We got him. He is he's stuck. We, bring, we, brought him into, we brought him into the school building. We're testing him. It's a surprise test. He is going to fail. This is kind of their thinking. But their question actually reveals their heart. Because their heart wasn't just against Jesus, wasn't just to try and catch him. Their heart really showed what they believed about things like marriage and what they were trying to get out of it, which was really about their own self-focus. Listen to this. It's a self-focused question. It's a spouse-critical question. It's a this-world-enchanted question. They're hoping to, to catch Jesus and also just to justify themselves. It really gets to their hearts, and Jesus is going to prove it because the second test is that Jesus fixes their test question. He actually changes it and puts it back on them. He actually tests them. I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't answer the question. This is so common of what Jesus does. He doesn't really, he doesn't play the game. And let me just push pause. He doesn't play your games either. And he doesn't play my games either. He's not going to play this game with them. He flips the question. They asked him in verse 2, hey, is it lawful in your opinion for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answers them and says, well, what did Moses command you? His question back is, I don't know, what do you think? That's not what he says. He says, what did Moses think? You tell me your highest authority, the one that you look to, Pharisees, as the highest authority for you, what did he command you? you? You tell me. You tell me what he said. And they quote from Deuteronomy. They say, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. Jesus says to them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, what does Deuteronomy 24 say? This is what it says. This is what they're quoting. It says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate and hand it to her and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if she dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land of the Lord your God, uh, is giving you an, who is giving you an inheritance. This is the, the matter of hardness of heart that he's saying. Moses wrote that for your hardness of hearts. Listen to the things that he talks about. He talks about finding something indecent, becomes displeasing, hates her. More than anything, Deuteronomy 24 isn't so much um, an approval of what they're doing, it's a protection for the wife who is being mistreated. She's not something to be used. And just discarded and given away. It's a holiness issue because, because you can't just go and just take for yourself this wife and this woman and sleep with this person, do this in any way you want to. And so Moses, because of sin that was in their hearts, had to write a law to say, look, if you're going to divorce your spouse, this is what needs to take place. It really was a protection, and, and Jesus is calling that out. He's saying, he's saying well, what did, what did Moses say? And they're just saying, oh, Moses, you know, they're using this as, as some sort of out to divorce whenever they want. Like somehow it's good for them. 
Yeah, we can do whatever we want. Look, it says that we can just give, you know, send her away and give her a divorce certificate, and it's fine. Find something indecent with her. But Jesus, Jesus actually kind of has them right where he wants them. At this point, he goes to their school and he becomes the valedictorian is what happens. Because he, what he's doing essentially, you ever get in a sibling argument? Maybe you don't have siblings, but you get in a sibling argument and someone says, you took that. And maybe you say, no, I didn't. You say, yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. And then you go, yes, you did. And they go, no, you didn't. You go, see? And you're like, wait a second. No, I'm confused. What's going on? This is what the Pharisees are. They're just, what? wait, what just happened? You flipped something on me here. What just took place? Because Jesus, from the outset, uh, is looking at this as the wrong question. Really, this is the question of them saying, when they're saying, is it okay to divorce? They're saying, what's the cheapest thing on the menu that we can do to actually get approval? This is the heart of a disciple who's trying to find an out for whatever behavior that they want. And Jesus says, Moses commanded this of you because of the hardness of your hearts. But look what he says after this. But Jesus, you know, Jesus told them, because of your hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning of creation, before sin entered the world, before brokenness came, before your hearts were hardened, before all of these things, here's the intention of God for you. God made them male and female, which is one of the reasons why, by the way, we do believe in a traditional biblical sexual ethic. God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together in sexual union in a marriage, let no one separate. Jesus is saying, your question's off. Your question's about what can we get away with, Jesus? Even you asking it makes a question, what can we get away with as a disciple? What does this look like? Hey, we've, it's been approved. We got the $2 taco. We can get as many of those chips as, as we want. Like, bring them on. I want some more bean dip. I want some more salsa because I, I followed what you asked me to do. But the problem is, it's not the heart behind it. The heart behind marriage isn't just like, I'm going to marry this person. You know what? Besides, besides sexual immorality in Matthew, we see this in Matthew, and besides things like abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7, don't have time to go all into that. You can write those down and go look them up. They're in there. But, but the, the, just the desire to say, I don't like you anymore. This, this marriage is hard. I'm in a really hard marriage. And so you know what we're going to do? We're just going to separate ways. We're going to get a certificate of divorce, and we're going to go our own way and do your own thing. Jesus says, you might as well just commit adultery. It's the same thing. What's different about me saying, uh, I don't like you right now. I'm just going to go sleep with somebody else. Or I don't like you right now. I might as well just make it official, get a divorce and go sleep with somebody else. What's the difference? The difference is a certificate that you get from the state. And Jesus is saying, uh-uh. That's not the intention. That's not God's plan for you in your marriage. Marriage actually between disciples looks different than this. Because marriage between disciples is Christ-focused, not self-focused. It's others charitable, not others critical. It's God's kingdom enchanted, not this world enchanted. And so we, we need to think differently as a disciple. The, the question that they're asking is, what can I, hey, what can we get away with? What do you think, Jesus? And Jesus is saying, that's the wrong question. You're asking the wrong thing. 
So what is the right question? If that's the wrong question, then what's the right question? How should they be thinking about this? Here's the right question. Do the decisions of my life have the flavor of Jesus? Do the decisions of my life, disciple, your life, have the flavor of Jesus? Moses gave these people, uh, these women, really a, a, a way out of a, of a marriage because of the hardness of the heart of the people of God at the time. But he's not going to let you or I or the Pharisees here get away on the technicality of divorce. Here's the thing about following Jesus. We, we look at Old Testament things, and sometimes we look at it and say, Jesus has fulfilled those. Yeah. But there's a lot of times that what he's calling us to is more radical than what was even said there. He, he a lot of times ups the ante on it. We talk about giving in the Old Testament. You have like certain money numbers there. Jesus says, no, no, it's about your heart. It's about feeling it. It's about what it means to be a generous giver. We talk about things like this and adultery, and it's about you, you have this divorce aspect. He goes even further than this and says, if you lust in your heart against somebody else, that's adultery. Man, this just points out it's hard to be a follower of Jesus. It costs us something. It costs us something. A lot of times it's comfort. A lot of times it's, it's our own desires. It's something that we want. It's something that we crave. And Jesus is saying it's not enough just to do the bare minimum here. To follow me. He is the king. We are the servants or the citizens of the king. We are those that come after him and say, what do you want with me, Lord? Let me follow this out. Jesus cuts to the heart. Sin has no bearing on this for the disciple because, yes, sin exists in our world, but it's not an excuse to just get out of things we don't like that he's saying for us to do. We follow him to the, to the letters. What does created order say? Is my, is my life having the flavor of the king? Or am I just making my own decisions in my own way for my own purposes? We need to make sure that we understand this. Now let me go back for a second because really what he's addressing is the salt issue. I read it first from verse 50. In a lot of ways, this flows out of the issue of salt losing its saltiness. Let me think, wait, how did we get that, Jason? That doesn't make any sense. How did you get from salt to divorce and what that's looking like? Let me just say a word to us here as we think about salt and saltiness and marriage the same thing is applied to us, okay? We, we who follow Jesus, there are times where, where divorce takes place because of sexual immorality and adultery, of, of abandonment or abuse or something like this, where we, we you know, for the protection of a woman, we, we, can, we, we have an out. The Bible gives us that. But a lot of times, as, even as Christians' disciples, people just decide, I've had enough of this. It's just too hard. And so we decide, well, I'm just going to get a divorce. I'm going to move on. And I think the scripture should push us to say, wait a second. What does this look like for us, Christian disciple, to be salted with Jesus, to have the flavor of Jesus, to walk this out? Because somebody that has the flavor of Jesus is not going to taste, have the flavor of the world. The flavor of the world does whatever they want to do. They ignore all of God's rules. And if we're talking about this, it's like you could you talk about, you know, sleeping with somebody before you get married just because you're trying to figure something out. 
committing adultery, looking at pornography. We, we have all of this going on in our culture and in our life, and Jesus is correcting all of this, and it should correct all of us. Me included, lust in my heart, the, the ways that we think about others, all of that should be corrected when we think about what it looks like to have the flavor of the king in us. A salt that loses its flavor, what is it going to season? This is like what he's talking about is, you know, I like to smoke um, brisket. I know a few months ago we had um, something after church here, and Chris Amaro, he smoked brisket out back, and you seasoned it all, and it's got that smoke flavor, and it tastes amazing. What would it be like if you smoked this thing for like 15 hours, and it comes off of that, and it it smells good, it has this smell of, oh man, this is going to be amazing, but then you see all the, the flavor on top from the seasoning, but when you taste it, it doesn't taste like flavored. It doesn't taste like anything. It just tastes like salt. Either you have COVID, could be, I don't know, or it's lost its flavor. It, it looks like it, but the flavor of it's not there. There's something missing. And oftentimes, Christian disciple, on the outside, we put masks on and we work really hard to look like Christians look like disciples. We, we want to try and put on an outer appearance of it, but you know what? The flavor of your lives doesn't match the seasoning. And this is what he's talking about when he says, if salt loses its flavor, how can it season anything? We should have the flavor of Jesus in us and on us and around us. And people, when they see us and interact with us, it should just have this flavor of the King joy and kindness, and something's different about them. Hey, their marriage is hard, but man, they are working through it. Why? You have joy in a difficult marriage. Why? You haven't just gotten divorced. Why? Because I'm, I'm Christ-centered uh, in my, how I'm thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm my spouse, not critical, but, but my spouse I'm trying to think the best of, and I'm trying to work this out because I, I want to have my eyes on the king. It represents something more. It has the flavor of Jesus. It has the flavor of the one that went to the cross in humility for us. Not just like, I'm going to do my own thing, but how, how do I walk this out in a way that pleases him and in a way that, that pleases uh, the one that I follow and the way that makes others look at me and say, hey, there's something different about him. We say, yeah, I'm a disciple of the king. They say, there's something that's different about you. You have a flavor of it. Now, let me, let me say this, because I don't want anybody out there, if you, if you have been divorced, let's just say you're a Christian, you've, you've been divorced. I don't want you walking away here feeling guilty or condemned or ashamed by anything I'm saying. Here's what I would say to you. If you're a Christian that has been divorced for reasons, either, either they're justified and you feel guilty about it or not. Maybe they're, you're in a situation where you just had, got tired of your spouse, you got divorced. I don't know. Let me say this to you. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. So, so it's not as though you look at that and you just think, okay, um, I blew it and now I can't follow him. I'd say, no, no, there's no condemnation for you. Take hope in the gospel. Okay, we are in process. We are in progress. You shouldn't think of your life and just think, I'm done. Jesus doesn't love me anymore. Listen, you know what? I think I would say this, that the times that we have where we look back at our sin and we feel like our sin is deep and great and maybe we grieve over it, I think those are the times that we, as we draw near to his throne of grace, as we draw near to the cross, we will find his arms wrapped around us way tighter than if we just feel like we're fine. 
So if you're tempted in those moments to feel like, oh no, I have to shrink back from Jesus because of something that happened in my past or in my life, I would say, don't shrink back. You have been given access to his grace because of his death for you. Run to that. Walk in that. Don't shy away from him. He is the God of grace after all, and he's calling you to himself. There is no condemnation for you. And maybe you're not a Christian here, and you're just thinking like, oh, my life's a disaster. I would say, yeah, but there's grace for you too. Look, it's not as though, it's not as though um, when we talk about the gospel, um, it's not as though we just think, hey, this gospel's for you just to make you feel guilty. No, the gospel, actually, the very word means good news. And you think, well, what's good news about showing me that I have a bad stuff that I've done in my life. Well, it, it's not just about the bad stuff that you've done in your life. It's about the king who redeems you from the bad stuff that you've done in your life. And who says, hey, even regardless of like all of that stuff that's happened, come to me if you are weary. I will give you rest for your souls. Come to me. And I would say, if you are feeling that now, run to him. Man, there is so much grace for you. You don't even understand the amount of grace that he has for you, the amount of kindness, the guilt that you're feeling in your life, non-Christian, the times you feel like you don't measure up. Let me just say that there is a king who says, yeah, take all that not measuring up. I'll take it. Bring it to me. I'd love to take a look at it with you. Not to make you feel bad about yourself, but to say, hey, I get it. Put it on my shoulders. I died for it. Let's, let's move forward. Walk forward with me in the goodness of my grace and my kindness. This is what it means to trust the good news of Jesus. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, how do I do that? It's not hard. It's not hard. It's recognizing that you need him and asking him for it. If you're thinking, I don't know how to pray, talk to someone that brought you, come up and talk to me. I'll be up here afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about this good news. But let me talk to disciples really quick. What can I get away with? The bare minimum is, is the wrong question. The question is, does my life have the flavor of Jesus the King? Is it is it the decisions of my life? How am I thinking about this? What does it look like for me? How do I live this out in my life? Look, you've been saved by God's grace. You are those who have, been, who have the, the, the goodness, the kindness, and the love of God on you. His righteousness, the Bible says, which just means his perfection on you. You have that on you. The question is, do I... Smell like it is the flavor of that on me as I live out my life for the sake of the king. And there's two ways we can live this out to, to help us understand. The first is this. Decide to follow Jesus to the cross and stay there. The longer we sit at the foot of the cross, the more, the more we smell like it, the more there's a flavor of that king who died on that cross for us. We don't want to move on too quickly from that cross. That, that place that he died for us. We think Christianity is weird because we talk a lot about death and blood and you know, we're going to take communion and we're, we're thinking about the blood of Christ and his broken body. You know, the whole point of communion as we take the Lord's Supper together is to remember his death until he comes. We, we as a church are called to remember his death until he comes. This just isn't something that we do together uh, on Sundays as we take communion, go, okay, remember his death again. No, we should be doing this regularly because it's in his death that you find forgiveness. It's in his death that I find forgiveness for my sins. When we look at the, the empty tomb, it is an exclamation point on the work that he's done for us and now he lives forever to intercede for us and allows us to come boldly before his throne of grace in our times of need. And so we do that. 
And we want to sit there at the cross because it's, it's, it's at the moment that he died on the cross that he showed us what it looked like to follow him. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And we want to make sure we understand what it looks like. It cost him something to redeem us and it costs us something to follow him. We need this. We need discipleship in our lives to properly understand spiritual formation. It's one thing to know the Bible and to have a theological formation in our minds. It's another thing to apply it and have a spiritual formation and change. We don't want to be those that simply have a head knowledge of God without following action of what it looks like to live for him. We also don't want to just live for a God we don't understand without understanding who he is. We want to understand both of those things and allow them to be guardrails in our lives. And we do that, I think, by walking to the cross and saying, what does the humble one say? What does his love for me look like in self-sacrifice? How should I live that out? Two of our values are being purposely biblical, which is seeing the object of what it looks like to know him and to live it out. Another one is to be joyfully generous, to give our time to others, but also to give our time to know him. And some of us, you know, I've found huddles and community groups and serving together to be ways to do that, opening up our homes to bring people in to have meals together and encourage one another uh, as we follow Jesus together. I mean, there is a necessity for us to do that together. We walk this life out together, may it be so, as we follow Jesus to the cross and stay there. There are some times where in my life I want to wander from the cross. Because, man, it feels, sometimes it's just easier to do my own thing. You know what I mean? It's just easier to take whatever I want to do and just go do it without thinking about what God wants because, ah, it's just easy. Sometimes I need people to come along and remind me and just say, hey, hey, what does it look like to follow Jesus now? We need people around us, church. We need people around us to do that. Where are you getting that from? Do you have somebody around you that's pointing you to him, that's walking with you through him, uh, with him? Are, are, you, are you thinking about that in your life? How are we processing through those things? Decide to follow Jesus to the cross and stay there. And the second thing that I would say is ask this question, what does God desire and live it out? This is what Jesus is saying. What, what did God desire from, the, from uh, the creation of the world? This, this gets us away from the question of, like, what's the bare minimum? It's not the bare minimum. It's, it's what does God call me to? What is he asking of me? How do I live this out, disciple of Jesus? What does it look like to be a disciple of the king? We, we asked the question in our, in our um, series title, who then is this? And I think we've answered it. He is the king. He's God almighty. He is the maker of everything and the sustainer of everything and the king of everything, including you and me. And therefore, when we go our own way, we're just saying, I don't care what the king says. But as a disciple, we want to have the flavor of what it means to be seasoned with all who he is and what he's done for us. And so we, we live that out and we walk that out. Say, what does God desire of me? And let me live that out. And let me add one more thing here. And Julie, you can come on up. Let me add one more thing as I think about this. This takes a lot of prayer. If you're not a prayer, prayer, if you're someone that doesn't pray often, I wonder if it doesn't just point to the fact that maybe, maybe you're trusting yourself instead of trusting him. And I'll just say, look, God is the one who can empower you to live a life that glorifies him. When we try and do that on our own, we're like banging our heads against a wall sometimes because we just can't 
do enough. But you know what? It's not about doing enough. It's about trusting God enough. And what does that look like for us as we walk that out? None of us will be perfect disciples. You will fail in your discipleship, and so will I. We're not going to live out this life perfectly because sin exists. It's all around us. We fight it. But, but here's the point. We want to fight it together for his glory and his name as we, are, as we are light to the community around us and we try to tell people about Jesus and encourage one another to live for him. This is what it, what it means as we walk this out. So we don't want to ask the question, what can I get away with? We want to ask the question, hey, is my life flavored with the king? What does it look like for me to live this out today? And, and then we want to we do that. What, what would it look like for all of us to live this out? Christian, what would it look like for you to live this out? Even us as a church globally to live this out. All of us, if we were a church that went out from here and we all said, what does it look like for all of us to be flavored with the king? What might, what might God do in us? I pray that he would work in us and move in us and change us. After all, we've decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. We, we just run forward. So may we do so together. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. May this, may this word, Lord, may it be an encouragement to us to live for you. Lord, we are, we are in this section where you are hitting some really difficult things with your disciples to help them understand. And, and we, we are learning, so help us as well. Lord, as we respond now in song and then taking the Lord's Supper together, Lord, may we do so with hearts full of faith and desire to live for you. Lord, help us to do that. Because you, you died for us, Lord. May we live for you with the, the cross in our minds and the empty tomb which um, is shining brightly as we, as we think about the sacrifice for us, Lord. Help us as we, as we live our lives for your glory, Lord, in your name. Amen. And let's stand together as we, as we sing. I really hope that you were encouraged by the sermon today. You can learn more about us at anchorchurchgilbert.com. We'd love to have you join our mailing list. You can do that on the website. If you have any questions for us about who Jesus is, please let us know through our website. I hope that you were encouraged.